Hey guys, before we get into this interview, I just wanted to apologize for the sound quality on my end. There was a little bit of a mishap with my microphone connection, and I don't sound as great as my guest does. This is still a great interview, and I hope you stick around to listen. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to 20 Tim Minutes, a podcast that focuses on mental health in a serious but yet humorous way. Listen as I interview a wide variety of guests where we show our support as well as sharing our own personal struggles and stories with mental health. I am your host, Tim McCarthy, and now it's time to talk about it. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're tuning in to another episode of 20 Tim Minutes. I am your host, Tim McCarthy. Today we have on psychotherapist, international best-selling author, mental strength trainer, editor-in-chief at Very Well Mind, as well as a podcast host, and also gave one of the most popular TEDx talks of all time. Amy Morin, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Not, not many people ask that. <laughs> I'm a What's therapist, not- so I'm used to asking people, how are you doing? <laughs> That's very true. It's very true. What does mental health mean to you? I would say it means uh, our thoughts, feelings, and behavior it has a lot to do with the way that we think, the way we feel, the way that we act. The choices that we make every day, whereas physical health would be more about our body, mental health is about our minds, but it's not just about our minds in terms of our brain, but also, again, it affects the way our emotional state, the actions that we take, and all of those thoughts that run through our heads all day, every day. I knew you were going to hit that out of the park. I, I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> now, I like to ask questions that I'm too afraid to ask in general life. So now that I have you here, you're a psychotherapist. What's the difference between a psychologist, psychiatrist, and a psychotherapist? Oh, that's a great question. I think a lot of people don't understand. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who can prescribe medication. So they might prescribe you Prozac or lithium or something like that. Yeah. A psychologist, there are a few states that allow psychologists to prescribe medication, but for the most part, they don't do that. They have a doctorate degree in psychology. And a psychotherapist, we usually have a master's level degree. So my master's degree happens to be in uh, social work, but other people have majored in, there's all sorts of different majors that can lead you to be a psychotherapist. Sometimes people are licensed marriage and family therapists. Sometimes people are uh, licensed clinical professional counselors. It all depends. Different states have a few different of those initials after your name, but usually a psychotherapist um, is at least a master's level person. Sometimes it is a doctorate level person as well, but a psychologist is somebody that has their doctorate degree. And we often do the same thing. Psychologists, one of the differences, they can often do psychological testing. So they can do an evaluation that master's level clinicians like me cannot do. I, yeah, because I have a psychologist that I talk to for therapy, then I have a prescriber that does my meds. So I always get them confused when someone asks me, I'm like, do I have a psychologist or psychiatrist? I right. always forget the difference. Where did you, uh, where did you go to school? Uh, so I got my master's degree at the University of New England in Portland, Maine. Yeah, New England. That's I like to hear. Right. <laughs> now, I read be- that you became an accidental author. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So I was a therapist in Maine, minding my own business. And uh, I started therapy, being a therapist in, I don't know, 2001, 2002, somewhere in that window. And in 2003, my mom passed away. And it was one of those moments where I thought, ooh, this is no longer about helping other people with their mental health or helping other people build mental strength. (laughs) At the moment, I need to figure out what do I do? How do I go through this crisis in my own life? And then how do I get myself in shape that I can go back to work and, and be an effective therapist? And I was only 23 at the time. So 
and my mom and I have been really close. So it was this really painful, difficult thing. And my first like huge hurdle as a therapist where I then had to figure out how to manage my personal life while also managing my professional life. And uh, a few years after that, it was actually in a cruel twist of fate, three years to the day that my mom died, my 26-year-old husband died. And I had to figure out, well, what do I do now on an emotional level? How do I deal with my grief? But also on a practical level, like, ooh, how do I afford this house now that it's just me and my right. income? And one of the things I decided to do was to start writing as a side hustle. When you're a therapist, you can only work so many hours a week. It wasn't like I could work nights and weekends to make extra money, uh, partly because I wouldn't be able to be effective as a therapist, but also our office is closed at 5 p.m. every day. So right. I needed to earn money. And I decided to uh, write some articles as a side hustle just to earn a little bit of extra income and at first, I wrote articles for fifteen dollars each. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to uh, you know keep the lights on for a little while. And then I wrote this one article called "13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do." Went viral; like fifty million people read it at last count. And and then I got a book deal. Never imagined, never intended to become an author. Never set out thinking that that's what I was going to to do in life. I was fairly comfortable being a, a therapist in Maine, but. Uh, a literary agent called me and said, you should write a book. And I didn't even know what a literary agent was. So I sort of just said, oh, thanks. But luckily, she called me back about a week later and said, no, I'm serious. You should really turn this into a book. And nobody really knew the backstory of why I had written it. They just thought, oh, somebody published this online. But the truth was, I was in this really dark place in my life. At the moment that I wrote that, my uh, father-in-law had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I had already lost my mom. I had already lost my husband. And now I was about to lose my father-in-law. And I thought, this isn't fair. And I wrote this letter to myself about what mentally strong people don't do. And it was the things I had learned as a therapist and through my own personal journey. And I really planned on only keeping it for myself, but I found the letter helpful. So I thought maybe someone else will too, threw it up on the internet. And here I am. Now I get to write a book and talk about mental strength and um, do all this cool stuff like me on your podcast. Thank you. Yeah, you did a couple of books. Why, uh, why 13? Any specific reason for that? There wasn't. A lot of people asking that question. There was no magic in the number 13. It was just those were the things that I had learned uh, over over the time as a therapist and through my own journey. And I just wrote it down as a list. First time I ever really wrote it down on paper, saw it in front of me, and then again, put it on the internet, but didn't... If I had been... If I had intended to write an article or I thought, okay, this I'll see if I can make a popular article. I probably wouldn't have written it the way I did. This was really the first thing I'd ever written from the heart. At that point, I was churning out dozens of articles every month, but they were usually based on studies and scientific facts I'd found. They were kind of dry and stale and all about other stuff. This one was first one I really wrote from the heart and happened to be 13. What is, um, we don't want to give the whole book away, but what is one of the ones out of 13? To give uh, the, taste. the first one on the list is that mentally strong people don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. The reason that was first on my list is because that's where I was in that moment is I thought this is not fair. I shouldn't have to deal with one more loss. Uh, I don't think I can handle it. And there's a huge difference. Like it's healthy to be sad. It's healthy to grieve. It's healthy to go through painful emotions. But when we feel sorry for ourselves, it's when we start to focus on the unfairness of the situation, when we start to exaggerate how horrible and awful everything is, and we doubt our ability to cope with it. And that's where I was in that moment. And I was like, no, Amy, this will drain you of mental strength. You can't do this to yourself right now. Yes, it's going to be painful, but yeah, you can get through it. And 
that's why that one tops the list because that's where I was in that moment. What made you want to get involved in the mental health side? So, uh, I guess it's not the most exciting story. It's a bizarre one. So I was going to be a doctor and I thought my whole life, I was like, I'm totally going to be a doctor. And then my first day of uh, college, of graduate school, we had to dissect cats and like everybody else was really excited and I wasn't. And it like occurred to me, I don't actually want to be a doctor. I just like the idea of being a doctor. So I called my sister and she was a psychology major in college. And I said, uh, hey, I think I have to change my major. I'm thinking psychology. What do you think? And she's like, no, nobody wants a bachelor's degree in psychology these days because what do you do with that? She said, at least go into social work and you get a social work license when you're done. And I didn't really know anything about it, but I thought that sounds good because I just really want to get out of this whole pre-med thing. So I switched my major to social work thinking I would uh, change it down the line. And then I actually fell in love with social work and decided to get my master's and keep going in it. I'm really wondering where they just get a collection of dead cats. Like they're not, they're not signing up to be an organ donor, but I'm a huge cat guy. That would be pretty tough for me. Yeah. You know, like I'd done the whole seventh grade biology thing where we dissected a frog, but this cat thing, it was like, no, nope, not, not going to do it. <laughs> you ain't kidding. Why is it so hard for us to talk about mental health? For a long time, we had this belief that if, if we talked about mental health, it meant something was wrong with us, right? If you were 30 years ago, if you said you're going to see a therapist or that you took medication, people would be like, mm, something really wrong with that guy. It's not until recent that I feel like we've gotten to this place where we realize, no, you see a doctor for your physical health. You see a dentist for your teeth. Why wouldn't you see somebody for your mind? Your mind affects everything in your world. So why wouldn't you have somebody to talk to? And it doesn't mean that you're horribly broken or that you have an extreme mental illness or anything like that. It just means you want to better yourself. So I think we're getting there. We're getting to the point where people are more comfortable. If anything good came out of COVID, that might be it, that people are more yeah. willing to talk about it. But I still think we have a long way to go. We sure do. So there's people who take meds to help their mental illnesses. What do you make of people who go like the holistic route, uh, like people that might take like ketamine or microdosing route? Like, what do you think of that? Uh, you know, I'm... I think we haven't made enough progress. I mean, mental health medications haven't even been around that long. It was like the 50s when we first started coming out with stuff. And then it's been a few decades of trying to refine it and figure things out. And the truth is, we don't really know that much about the brain and how it works. And so when we talk about things like microdosing or ketamine, I mean, the professionals who have studied it will still come out and say, we're not exactly sure why it works, but it does work for a lot of people. And Unless you've ever been in extreme pain, I feel like you have no right to really judge people for what they do to manage their pain. We're losing so many people to mental health issues that we have to do something different. Antidepressants don't work for everybody. And why not say, let's try other approaches? Uh, a lot of the things we do are still kind of archaic in terms of the strategies we have, a lot of things we haven't evolved enough. And then when you get into something like uh, psychedelics, well, they're not legal, so we haven't even been able to study them that much. So, uh, but I think it's so many people suffering. I think it's okay to figure out what, what else should we do for people who are really in pain if microdosing something is what works for them all the more power to them to figure that out. And I think we need to do a lot more research on it, on the long-term effects. One of the concerns I do have is all this, all these talks lately about psychedelics, 
that people don't really understand that you know, there's a difference between doing them recreationally and trying things therapeutically and they're mixing and matching and doing all of these things yeah. in an attempt to, to feel better. But, um, but on the other hand, we need to be able to study these more and the state of Oregon is kind of leading the way pretty soon. Therapists are going to be, uh, doing, uh, using psychedelics in the therapy office. And I think then we'll have a much better idea of how they're working, what conditions it's treating. As of right now, we talk about a lot of these things like they're absolute miracle drugs. It cures anxiety, PTSD, yeah, yeah. Uh, depression. And until we really have more, but the, a lot of that just is based on surveys with people, that kind of stuff. So until we really have more research going on, I think we won't really know what's working, what doesn't, if there are side effects, um, how it's affecting people, that sort of thing. I'm such a big proponent of that. Like what works for me not, might work for somebody else. And I think people forget that. It's like, oh, I take Adderall. And it's like, oh, Adderall doesn't work for me. It's like, okay, well, I, it doesn't work for me. And if, for people too, who would come into my therapy office and a lot of them were like, well, the side effects of my medication are worse than the problem I had in the first place. And psychiatrists might be like, you just got to keep sticking with it for a while. That will go away. And you know, and with the current meds we have, it's like four to six weeks to even know if it's working. And if you're in pain and you're suffering, six weeks is a really long time. And then if it's not working, you have to figure out, well, do I just need a higher dose or do I need to switch medications? That's a really, really long time to wait when you're in pain. Yeah, for sure. And I think another issue with the uh, like ketamine side is like people abuse medication as well. So like, like you kind of like mentioned, it's like, it's very tough to probably do that because people can't abuse those drugs as well. Yes, exactly. What's your strategy to help people break bad habits and that are holding them back? So first of all, becoming aware of them. Sometimes we bury our head in the sand or we minimize it. But one of the things, one of the reasons why I talk about what not to do is because I see so many people with 101 good habits, but then they have this like one counterproductive bad habit. Well, stop putting all of your energy into these 101 habits and let's focus on this one bad habit just for a little while. And if you get rid of that, all of those other good habits that you already do become so much more effective. So first, it's just raising somebody's awareness of like this one thing that's holding you back. And, and then after that, it's about figuring out, well, how motivated are you to change? You wouldn't have a bad habit unless it somehow served you in life. There's, you're getting something out of it. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. But what would be what would life be like if you gave it up? And so sometimes we'll just create a list of like, here are the top 10 things that I'll gain if I give up this thing. And then when you try to reach for that bad habit again, you read over that list and it gives you that boost. Our brains are funny. It will talk us out of stuff. It will try to convince us to, to reach for that temptation. It will tell you nobody's watching or it doesn't matter. Or this one time won't hurt we all give ourselves those speeches and those conversations that really say, yeah, today doesn't matter. And then you beat yourself up for making a mistake and it's this vicious cycle. So I'm a fan of saying, let's have a written list of the top 10 reasons why you should do something. And like a really quick example is I had this woman in my therapy office who she had an ex who was not good for her, but she said, when I see his name show up on my phone, I can't help but answer it. And she didn't want to block him because she said he'll call from a different number. He'll figure it out. She said, but I see his number and my, it's like my heart skips a beat. I picked a phone up and then she's like, I head right back down that path where we end up in a quick relationship. It ends quickly. It's a cycle I can't get out of. So she wrote down 10 reasons why she uh, shouldn't answer the phone when he calls. And she put it on a piece of paper. She tapes it to the back of her phone. When she sees his number, she decides before I answer, I'm at least going to read this list. And if I get down to number 10 and I still think it's a good idea to, to answer the phone, I'll do it. 
she said she would flip over the phone. She'd get it to like number four and be like, okay, I got this. I'm not going to answer the phone. It was just one of the, one of the re- ways she could break out of that cycle that of getting into these, un- this unhealthy on and off again relationship all the time. But for uh, all of us, we have certain bad habits, certain things we do, certain things we reach for on a bad day or when you're uncomfortable. So just figuring out well, what would life be like if I didn't do that anymore? What are the benefits? And here's the reasons why I shouldn't do it. And sometimes we can talk ourselves out of it when our brain tries to talk ourselves into a bad habit. Right. I see you talk about uh, mental strength. You mentioned that earlier and we talked about what mental health means to you. What is mental strength exactly? Yeah, the it's easier to make sense of it when we think about like physical health and physical strength. So you might have a physical health problem, like you have uh, high blood pressure, but you can still go to the gym and build big uh, muscles. You can still work out and yeah, lifting weights and building muscles can prevent a lot of health issues, doesn't prevent them all. And it makes you healthier. Mental strength is the same. It's about the exercises you do every day to work out your mind, practicing gratitude, for example, or figuring out how do you manage your emotions in a healthier way. If you get angry and you always lose your temper, mental strength exercises might be about calming your brain and your body when you get upset. So it's those sorts of things. We all have choices we make. And for people to know that a mental health issue isn't a sign of weakness, because a lot of times people will be like, oh, I'd like to be mentally strong, but I have depression. Or I wish I could be mentally stronger, but anxiety holds me back. Yeah. Some of the strongest people I ever met were battling mental health issues. And yet they still said, okay, here are the choices I'm going to make today. I'm going to do these things. They're hard to do. Harder than if you didn't have those mental health issues, but people still do them anyway. People who are clinically depressed, it's hard to just get up and get out of bed. Making a phone call can feel like it's impossible for somebody with anxiety, leaving the house, going out and doing things. That's extra hard to do, but I see so many people trying because they say, okay, this is what I need to do. And this is how I'm going to grow mentally stronger. You just described myself. (laughs) (laughs) Now your TEDx talk, it's one of the most popular ones out there. Can you explain to the listeners what it's about and how did it become so popular? Is it just that great? Uh, Yeah, good question. (laughs) So my TEDx talk is uh, the secret of becoming mentally strong. And the uh, the title is what definitely got a lot of views. Um, yeah. And I talk about the some of the things that hold us back, what mentally strong people don't do. And uh, other than that, you know, it's really about the the beliefs that we have about ourselves, how to change some of those beliefs. You know, it's all crammed into fifteen minutes or or fewer. And in, in order to meet the TEDx guidelines, but I really just talk about the the strategies that we can all use to to become stronger and how to give up our unhealthy habits. How did you learn how to speak so well? <laughs> so, well, first, thank you for saying that in the first place. So I was like the shy kid that never talked in the back of the class. Like my Even in high school, my teacher would read my papers for me because I was just way too shy. So I never thought I could ever be a public speaker. That would have been like my worst nightmare for most of my life. And... The first time I really ever spoke publicly was my husband's funeral. I gave a eulogy at his funeral. And for the first time ever, like I didn't care if my face turned bright red. I didn't care if I stumbled over my words. Like it wasn't about me. It was like there were some stories I wanted to tell because I wanted people who knew him but yet didn't know certain things about him. I wanted them to hear. So I didn't care about myself. I was like, you know, this isn't about me. And then once I gave that, I thought, well, if I can get up there in front of these people and and talk about my husband who just passed away, 
getting up in front of a room of salespeople really isn't, isn't so scary anymore. And I've kept that with me when I get up on stage now, it's not about me and whether I stumble over my words or whether I say something silly, it's about what do I feel like the audience could benefit from hearing. And when I made that shift in my head, made a lot of the anxiety go away. And then I hired a speaking coach. I hired somebody to say, cause I started getting phone calls after my article went viral to get on stages and speak and, I'm a social worker. I talked to somebody one-on-one in my office. I've never been on a stage in my life. I don't know what to do, how to do it. How do you create a slide deck? I wasn't, I had no idea about any of that. So uh, I hired uh, Nick Morgan out of Public Words, who happens to be in Boston and said, because uh, I had gone to a speech and this lady had said he was her speaking coach. And I thought, well, she looks good. I'll just call this <laughs> her speaking coach and see what happens. And uh, he helped me figure out, okay, if you're going to have an audience, this is how you craft a speech based on whether you have 15 minutes or an hour and um, really helped me figure that out. How many views is it, is it at right now? Uh, I think my TEDx talk might be at like 21 million, 22 million, something, <sighs> something like that. Fantastic. Yes. <laughs> We talked about this a little bit earlier. You touched on it. How do you deal with grief and loss of life? Do you have any words of wisdom for someone going through grief as well? Uh, grief is such a weird thing. Like we don't talk about it. And when you're grieving, other people are uncomfortable. So they do everything they can to try to cheer you up and make you feel better. They're like, oh, and they do the whole at least. At least they didn't suffer. At least, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, you're, you're young. You'll get remarried. Like that was not what I wanted to hear uh, in those early days. But to know that grief is part of the process by which we heal, you have to go through it. And our tendency is to try to go around. We'll distract ourselves. We'll do anything we can to feel better. We minimize it. We just do that to ourselves. Well, at least this, at least that. And really, the blow, you have to go through it. All the emotions, the sadness, the anger, the frustration, the confusion, whatever you feel is okay. And figure out how do you cope with those feelings in a healthy way. It's so tempting to do anything we can to get rid of the pain in the moment. But sometimes it's about saying, you know, I don't feel like going for a walk around the block today, but I'm going to do that. And if you have anybody that you can talk to, certainly that helps as well. If it's a friend, a family member. Fortunately, when it comes to grief, there are lots of support groups that are free. So if somebody can't afford to talk to a therapist, going to a support group, just to be able to sit down with other people who get it can make all the difference in the world because our losses are different. And yet people will try to say, oh, you know, my grandmother passed away. I definitely understand what you're going through. Well, maybe you lost a child or you lost a a spouse and it's not the same, but if you can find a support group for people who understand what you're going through, uh, just being able to talk and hear other people's stories and what's helping them can make a big difference. Shows how, uh, how strong you are to go through that, losing someone like your mom and your husband. So I do apologize for your loss. Now, I feel like everyone does this when somebody dies. Did you receive an edible arrangement? I did, in fact, yes. <laughs> Why is that a thing? I never understood that. It's like, oh, your grandmother died. Here is a bunch of chocolate-covered strawberries. <laughs> you know, I, the, I got a lot of interesting things, and I am so thankful for everybody that did something. And I think we just, we know, like, ooh, flowers. Like, everybody gets, is going to give you flowers. So, like, somebody gave me, like, a six-foot sub because I had a lot of people at my house. So I was like, oh, thank you. Um, and yes, I got the edible arrangements. I had another friend who gave me a Home Depot gift card. She's like, probably going to need some home improvement projects. She's like, the flowers, the plants, those are all going to die next week. Here's a Home Depot gift card. Super appreciated it. Uh, so I think we're always just looking for like, what do you do? And all right, I don't want to give you the the flowers that are going to die next week. So maybe this will help. Here's a 
Yeah, some chocolate-covered strawberries and a pineapple in the shape of a flower. Just because we want to do something and we don't know what to do. And if depending on your relationship with somebody, like my brother-in-law came over and he was like, I'm going to scrub your bathtub. I was like, whatever. If you'd like to do that, you have at it. And um, he was just like, I have to do something for you. Like, there's literally nothing I can do, but I'm going to like get your bathtub sparkly just because I feel like I have nervous energy and I need to do something right now. So... We always want to do something for somebody. You don't know what to do for them. If they're, you don't know them that well, you probably shouldn't offer to clean their bathtub, but right. you can send them something. It just, uh, hey, I'm thinking of you. And I always encourage people to, that first week is when people get overwhelmed with all the things they have to do anyway. If they're planning a funeral, they're dealing with all the practical things. They're bombarded with plants, flowers, things that come to them if they're fortunate. But it's like week three is when that all kind of goes away. So if you can maybe hold off and you send somebody an edible arrangement on week three, it'll probably mean a lot more to them than if you send it on day two. Right. And I feel like it's a little bit awkward from that other side because you don't know what to do. And I feel like everyone always asks and says, it's like, oh, if you need anything, reach out. No right. one's ever going to reach out. So those people that just go out and do something like props to them. Exactly. I had some people that would call with something very specific too. If, and that was super helpful. So if somebody called me and said, do you need groceries? Cause I'll go grocery shopping for you. Or I had somebody else that called and said like money, do you need money right now? And when people would call and say, Hey, do you, cause I had a lot of people that would say, yeah, call if you need anything. Well, same thing. It's really hard to make that phone call when you're struggling. You had such a great career so far. Uh, when it comes to you, what would your mom and husband be most proud of you about? Uh, so my mom would just be like super impressed that I could talk in front of a group of people because she knew me as the really shy kid who never talked. So I think she'd be extremely impressed about that. Uh, my husband would be super impressed that my book is in, it's in more than like 40 languages right now. Oh, wow. And uh, when he was, the first story I ever heard about him, my college roommate had told me this story about this guy who he put his name on his license plate. And we lived in Maine and he used to back into snowbanks when he was in high school just to imprint his name on the snowbank. And uh, he thought that was funny that people should know his name. His name was Lincoln. So it was kind of a strange name. So I put his name in my book on purpose. And so you'll see it say Lincoln Morin and it's now in more than 40 languages. So I say, okay, I helped you get your name out all around the world. So I know he would be super impressed that <laughs> my book is in more than 40 languages. That's fantastic. Where can people get the book? So it's available pretty much wherever books are sold from Amazon, all the usual suspects, Barnes and Noble, um, and HarperCollins website because they're my publisher. Fantastic. What does self-care look like for Amy Moore? So I, I live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys. So the idea of doing like relaxing things, well, that's pretty much my life. It's like kind of cool. There's you know, dolphins and manatees that swim by. So if I'm really going to take care of myself, though, I like to do really fun and exciting things that get my heart pumping. To me, that's self-care. So I have a jet ski. So I'm more on the, if I have a Saturday afternoon with nothing to do, I jump on a jet ski and woo, take some waves and, and go flying out in the in the ocean uh, just to feel alive. Doing fun things like that is what makes me, what makes me feel alive. You'll never catch me, like, I don't know, relaxing on the beach with, I don't know, or taking a bubble bath, those sorts of things. I don't find to be self-care. I just want to go out and do fun, exciting things. How is it living on a sailboat? I find that very interesting. Are you on it right now? I am. Uh, It's amazing. It's it's so cool. cool. Again, I lived in rural Maine where it was snow up to the windows in the winter and dark out at 4 p.m. And 
realized through my journey, well, you know, life is short because we had said, oh, maybe someday we'll do this. But I thought, you know, someday isn't promised. Why would I wait till I'm 70 years old and retired to, to make a change in my life? Let's do something yeah. else. So uh, packed up, moved onto a sailboat. And I think there's some complicating factors, of course, like hurricanes come through every once in a while in the Florida Keys. But on the right. other hand, that's pretty cool. And we have way faster internet here in the on a sailboat in the Florida Keys than we do in rural Maine. Wow, that's interesting. So if yes. you're watching this on YouTube, she has all of her books behind you. But I have to ask, what are those other two things on the side that look like almost records? What are those awards? So my podcast producer has six or seven Grammys. And uh, those are his plaques with Nicki Minaj, I believe. And so we have the song Happy with Pharrell Williams. He recorded that. And we've got Mark Anthony plaques. So. We uh, decorate the podcast studio with both books and his plaques. <laughs> Fantastic. I love these transitions. They got layups for me because that's what I was going to get into next. So I appreciate that. So you're the editor-in-chief at Very Well Mind, which is a great website. I use it for my research from time to time. And it's always great articles. And I'm not just saying that. As well as a podcaster for them. How did you get involved with Very Well Mind? And then I want to get into the podcast a little bit more after. So I started writing for Very Well Mind back in the day when I just needed extra money as a side hustle. And so I've been there. I forget how many years I've been there, but I started my way as just a, a small freelance writer for them over the years. And then uh, they were about.com way back in the day. So I started with them then, and then we switched into to Very Well and was just always a freelance writer for some of their sites, worked my way up. And then a couple of years ago, they said, we'd like you to be our editor-in-chief. So I went from freelance writer to editor-in-chief of their website. And by then, I had already had my own podcast. And so they, uh, we decided to partner on the podcast. And in addition to being their editor-in-chief, I get to be the host of the Very Well Mind podcast. Who are some guests that you've had on? Because you have a pretty great list of guests. We had uh, Terry Crews, uh, the host of America's Got Talent, of course, and Brooke Shields, uh, Leanne Rimes. Um, jojo the singer jojo that's i i love jojo and that's one of my white whales i absolutely love her Fox right. she, girl. yeah i was gonna say she's a massachusetts girl she was so nice she was amazing uh and we had chrissy metz from this is us right about the time that that show was ending and so we've tried to get a variety of from athletes to entrepreneurs to celebrities and then of course authors and experts and people who don't just share their story, but also people who have done some research on things so we can get down to the nitty gritty of how do we improve our mental health and how do we grow mentally stronger? So people can find that just uh, like searching Very Well Mind podcast? Yeah, we have a nice link on the top of the page now, verywellmind.com and then verywellmind.com slash podcast will take you there as well. What are some words of encouragement that you would give to somebody that who feels down and out? That you're stronger than you think. Your brain will doubt you. It will underestimate your ability to deal with things. It will overestimate how bad things are going to be. So just ask yourself, well, what would I say to a friend right now? And you'll just, when you take the emotion out of it, like you'd say to your friend, oh, you'll be okay or you'll get through this. But if you just give some, yourself some of those same wise words and uh, talk to yourself with a little more kindness, it can go a long way. I like to end this with uh, all of my guests. What would your personal theme song be? Think about like if you were a boxer coming out to the ring, Amy Morin's name is said, what song would be playing? Well, the song I always listen to before I go on stage to give a speech is uh, This Girl Is On Fire. <laughs> this girl is on fire. That's perfect. You got it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let's end with this. What are three things that you're grateful for today? 
I am grateful to to be in South Florida where it's sunny. Yeah, I'm grateful to be on a sailboat and grateful that I get to talk to people like you about mental strength. So thank you. Fantastic. Where can everyone find you on the internet? So my personal website is amymorinlcsw.com as in licensed clinical social worker, or you can find our podcast at verywellmind.com slash podcast. Fantastic. Amy Morin, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. That's been another episode of 2010 Minutes. Let's break the stigma by cracking a smile. I will see you soon. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. If you are feeling suicidal, please dial 911.